I mean, this is just the way that we love it. Get up in the morning and the air is crisp. Come 11 o'clock, it's time to take our sweatshirt off and everything. But we get to get into the words. A few others, I imagine, will be on the way. But we're going to ask you this evening to open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I believe this is where we finished up. We've been slowly but surely going through this book. And we want to look at a few more items related to the last days as Paul counsels Timothy, and we'll see how far we get, maybe even into chapter 5. But this first section is going to deal with Paul's warnings regarding false teachers. So chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit speaks expressly or plainly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Everybody said amen. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we break the bread of life this evening and look into the scriptures, we pray that you give us understanding. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to understand our redemption in a clearer fashion, but at the same time, to be able to walk in light of that redemption. We're so grateful for all that you've done in giving your son for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This being a pastoral letter, Paul is speaking to Timothy about a number of issues in the church, Timothy being the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a fairly large church with a number of elders. We know that from the book of Acts when Paul called all of the elders together when he said goodbye. We spoke a little bit about the qualifications of a pastor, and a deacon the lifestyle they should live, the things they should not do. And then we moved into chapter four, where now he turns his attention to the last days and he talks about a departure from the faith. Now, you wouldn't expect anybody to want to leave Christianity, but Paul could see it. He knew it would happen. And then he gives us reasons regarding that. And these seducing spirits are interesting because this Greek word for seducing is, is only here in this particular New Testament. And it has to do with a description of a spirit that wants to capture your loyalty and your affection. So any kind of seduction is going to be strong enough to where you'll be swayed in your private opinions regarding God in order to turn towards error. A doctrine we know is a teaching any kind of form of instruction. But let's not forget that they said John the Baptist had a devil. And they said that Jesus had a devil. So if a, if a person is full of evil, then of course that is going to be perpetuated through what someone teaches. If you've ever met somebody involved with Wicca, 
or some form of witchcraft. They are teachings that are passed down orally and in writing to the students of those particular faiths. The reason for that is you cannot preserve a teaching if you can't transmit that teaching. So the doctrines of devils then are designed to cause good believers, sound Christians, to become wayward in their faith. And he goes so far as to talk about speaking lies and hypocrisy. So we understand what a hypocrite is. That's a pretender. Someone who's acting out a particular role that they don't particularly embrace in reality. When we talk about a conscience seared with iron, think of... Think of a a part of the body or some kind of flesh that might be bleeding and you can take a hot iron and you can cauterize it so that the flesh comes together. And I mean, basically, the blood stops flowing Uh, in the end, that particular area, because it's seared, it now is insensitive to touch and feeling. And that's the kind of person he's describing here with a a conscience that's been seared. They are not affected by, convinced by, or convicted by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it relates to what's right and what's wrong. Now, we would have never thought that in the last days, part of the seduction would be telling people that they shouldn't marry. But, you know, there are plenty of religions on planet Earth where they encourage people not to marry. Only problem with that, when you do that with ministers, you can't really um, multiply the teachings of that faith. And then you you end up with a whole lot of problems. And this is one of the reasons, I think, in religious sects where they don't encourage marriage, you end up with all of these weird things that start taking place uh, sexually with folks. God designed men and women to be together. And the Bible says it's not good for a man to be alone. That's what he said regarding Adam. So if someone comes along and then forbids marriage that God has ordained, then again, you know you're dealing with the world or the flesh or the devil. Anything God ordains to happen, the adversary will come in to go in the opposite direction. Same thing in verse three regarding different types of foods. So there are Christians today who will tell you if you are born again and you love the Lord, you still have to stay away from certain kinds of meats. And they want to take you right back up under the law and tell you that you can't eat pork and you can't eat catfish and you can't eat shrimp and all of that kind of a thing. And they'll say, well, because God said those foods are bad for your health. And they'll go through all of this. But there's no scripture in the Old Testament that ever says catfish and shrimp and pork are bad for your health. God simply designated certain foods unclean and he designated certain things to be clean. And he didn't offer any kind of description at all. The same people who will tell you to stay away from certain foods that are unclean under the Old Covenant still don't eat under the new covenant the things that God said you can eat. You say, like what? The dung beetle? The grasshopper? The locust? When was the last time you found some Christians that said, look, we're having a potluck, and I mean, we're going to have dung beetles all night long. 
You don't, you don't find that at all. So what, it, what, what happens is if, if you try to keep some of the law without keeping all of the law, then the Bible says you're still guilty of the whole of the law. Well, we're redeemed now. And as Christians on this side of the cross, the Bible says in verse four, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused or rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So although you may not like to eat it, there are other people who do eat it. During the summer, Tiff and I had uh, lunch with a friend of ours, and he was telling us how when he grew up in one of the islands down in Central America, he said one of the foods they ate all the time was iguana. My stomach almost turned. But he said iguana is something that he absolutely loves. Well, I wouldn't want an iguana, but I'm not going to condemn him and tell him that he's not supposed to have it. Verse 5 says it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Peter had a vision on the rooftop in Acts chapter 10, had a sheet with all these different animals on it. And according to the law, these were animals he could not eat. And the Lord said, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter said, I can't because these are unclean. Then the Lord said, what I've cleansed, do not call unclean. And that was to teach Peter that he can go and minister the gospel to Gentile people who didn't have a covenant with God. But for us that are believers today, you need to understand God does not want you to be under the bondage of the law thinking, if I eat some short ribs that are made of pork, then I'm going to be in trouble with God. Or if I have some bacon, anything tastes good wrapped in bacon, you know, then I'm, then I can't, I can't eat. You're not going to be in trouble with God at all. So he tells him in verse six, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. The opposite also is true. If you don't remind them of these things and these other doctrines sweep over the church, then you're not being a good minister. So it is the role of the minister to ensure that false doctrine is pushed out and pushed away, not embraced. And when a minister embraces false doctrine, he or she will typically introduce those same teachings to the people that are there in the church. He goes on to say profane and old wives tables of fables stay away from them. You know, just just stay away from from faith. What's a fable? Something's not true. May have an ounce of reality in it. You remember Aesop's old fables with the animals that could speak and all of that. Well, verse eight tells us bodily exercise profited little. We want that little, though. But godliness is profitable in all things. And we definitely want that. We certainly want the godliness and it has the promise of the life that now is in that which is to come. So the way that we live now not only affects how we are blessed in this life, but how we're blessed in the life to come. If you don't walk with God today, don't expect to be with God on the other side. But if we walk with God today, then we know we'll be with him on the other side. Why, why would God open up heaven to people who didn't want to spend time with him on planet Earth? If a man or woman goes their entire life on planet Earth saying, I don't believe there is a God and there can't be a God and I refuse to trust in God. And then they die. And then the preacher gets up at a funeral and says, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross for everybody. And his, his death on the cross secured salvation for everybody, whether they believe or not. Hogwash. Salvation is guaranteed for those that believe. And spirit of God is the one that 
works in a person's heart and dealing with them with regard to faith. So where the gospel is proclaimed, the power of the Holy Ghost is given to produce the faith. And a person can believe or a person can reject it. It's all a matter of what they're going to do with the gospel message. So he continues then. And he says in verse nine and 10, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Therefore, we labor and suffer reproach. We trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So he's the savior of all men, but particularly of those that believe. What, what does that mean? That means his death on the cross is sufficient for every human being on planet Earth, but it's effective only for the ones that believe. Now, I'm not going to argue with you about how faith is manifested or inwrought inside the heart by the Holy Spirit. But I do want you to know this. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God by accident. A person has to believe your will is involved with this. And you have to believe the scripture says in Ephesians chapter one, having heard the gospel, we believe the gospel. Then we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says God knows those that belong to him. So just like a rancher has a brand that is on his cattle. God has a mark on every one of us that are born again. And he can see in the spirit who belongs to him, even if we can. You do know it's possible to be deceived about who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. Remember Judas backslid. And when Jesus said, what you do, go do quickly. It says in Luke 22, I believe, verse one, verse two says Satan entered into him. The other apostles had no idea they were sitting at the table with a man full of the devil. They didn't even know Judas was backsliding. They didn't even know Judas had backslid. But you can always find the fruit of a person's life as they walk with God. If you're consistent. You'll produce fruit. When someone tells me, well, he or she is born again. And I say, well, the way we'll know is we'll watch for the fruit. Well, five years later and you still don't see any fruit. And they say, well, she is born again. She's just a baby Christian. And she's one more baby Christian. If after five years you don't see any fruit. If you don't see any growth in a baby naturally after five years, you know, there's a developmental problem. So then if a person becomes a Christian and five years later, there's been zero evident change in their life. Can you really call that a new birth? You see, in the Bible, when folks are born again, their life changes. Now, the, the Puritans and if you read some of the old um, books of uh, Mr. Brannard, who was a missionary amongst the Indians, and you can see how he agonized and and was just troubled about his salvation. And when you read his, his uh, journal, it just seems like it took him, you know, 18 months to get to assurance. It doesn't take that long, folks. Believe. It's belief. Trust in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing with Timothy, Paul didn't want to leave him in that circumstance. So he said, don't let anybody despise your youth. Even though you're a young person, you can be an example of believers. And I want all young people in here to know that you can live your life in such a way that you can be an example to older people. Your life can be a model to the elderly, to the middle aged. 
Because where the older people don't do what is right, you can have fire, passion, zeal, fervency that older people don't have. You can have an honesty that some people don't have. One of the things I love about babies is when, you know, toddlers, and, and, but in particular the, the ones when they're seven and eight years of age, you start teaching them the Bible, they honestly believe what you're telling them. So you, 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 you teach them to pray, and you teach them that God answers prayer, and then all of a sudden you're telling them you don't feel well, and then they say, well, can I pray for you? And then, I mean, they pray for you with the expectation God's about to do something, and he's done something at the end of their prayer, and when they're done praying, they say, well, what's wrong with you? I prayed. God moved. What's wrong with you? See, a, a baby honestly believes that this book is going to work on their behalf. And I wish more adults thought like that, that we had the faith of a little child. So he says, be an example in word, how you proclaim the word, in conversation, your lifestyle, your speech. In charity, the way that you love, in spirit, see, that, that's everything from the move of God, the power of God, the, the character of God, the fervency in your life, in faith, in your confidence in God, in purity, how you live your life in front of people, separate from the world, totally close to God. And he said, until I come give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So he expects Timothy, having been left in Ephesus, to read the word of God, to exhort people, and to make sure he focuses on right and wrong doctrine, particularly the right doctrine, so he'll be able to distinguish what is false from what is right. You cannot learn what is wrong if you don't know what is right. So it's important to understand. I've told you before, back when I was in the Marine Security Guard School, we had classes that we had to share with the FBI Academy. And in the FBI Academy, to teach people how to recognize counterfeit money, they train you on the genuine dollar bills. And they, they force you to stare at that thing for hours. You take one test after another with regard to every image and every little pigment that's on there and the shape of it, any kind of discoloration, because they want you to know what the authentic dollar bills should look like. So when you come in contact with something false, if it feels different, the texture is different, if the image is different on it, then you realize this is false. And this is how we should be with the word of God. If we train ourselves on this, read the book, keep our nose in the book, focus on what God says in the book. When someone comes along with something that's false, we'll say, well, no, no, that that's not God, because that's not what the book says. But if you don't know what the book says, you can be easily misled. So he says in verse 14, don't neglect the gift that's in you, which is given you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbyters. Obviously, Paul and other elders laid their hands on Timothy and imparted or instilled in him a particular gift or ministry. And he's told to stir it up. Yeah, stir it up. So how, how can I neglect a gift that is in me? Just disregard it. Don't pay attention to it. If if the Lord calls a person to ministry, you do know that that person has the ability to ignore what God has called them to do. 
Yeah, they can do their own thing. They can just ignore and say, well, I know, God, you called me to do this, but I refuse to do it. And we've all heard testimonies of people who said, well, the Lord called me to minister or called me to sing or called me to do this or that. But I didn't answer the call for years. Well, that's a that's a dereliction of duty. And sound elders who know God and are ministering by the power of the Holy Spirit and something goes in to someone, they're going to want to encourage that person to do what's right with respect to God, to go God's way. So he says, meditate on these things, give yourself wholly to them that your profiting may appear to all. So the expectation is that what God does in your life, other people are going to see. So he said, you pay attention to yourself unto the doctrine. Notice how many times we've come in contact with that word doctrine in this book. He said, continue in them for in doing this, you'll save yourself and them that hear you. Now, that's my objective. I don't want to preach the gospel to people all my life and then uh, only to see multitudes not make it in and then myself become a, a castaway, as Paul said. I want to be saved by the gospel that I preach. And I want you to be saved by the gospel that I preach, which tells us there is a true gospel that will deliver people from sin, from the power of the wrath to come. But it's got to be told. See, it's got to be told. It's got to be. It has to be proclaimed. But you take heed to yourself. Am I responsible for your salvation? No. You're responsible for, for that yourself. You've got to pay attention to yourself. Is it my responsibility to call you every morning to make sure you had your morning devotions? No. Should I call you every afternoon to make sure that you prayed before lunch? No. Is it my responsibility to call you every evening to make sure that throughout the day you said you meditated on some words from the word of God? Absolutely not. You have to pay attention to yourself. I can't follow you around and you can't follow me around. We can't carry one another around in each other's pocket, but somebody has to be able to focus on what the teachings of scriptures say. Now, what does it mean to pay attention to, to doctrine? Well, if, if someone comes along and says something like this to you, well, you know, the Bible says that Cain was of that wicked one, which there's a verse that says that. And then they show you another verse in Genesis where it says that the serpent deceived Eve. If somebody comes along and says to you, well, I honestly believe that means that Cain was a product of a physical relationship between Eve and the serpent. Then you can reject that wholeheartedly. But believe me when I tell you, there are thousands of people that believe in that. What they call the serpent seed, that belief, that teaching, that doctrine. But that's not something that, that we ought to hold to. If someone says to you that when you die, you don't really go to heaven. You just kind of go into soul sleep and your soul stays in the graveyard until the end. Well, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But there are thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses that believe in soul sleep. So our understanding then is in holding this book in our hands and reading the word of God, we've got to stay with what the book says, even if other people are departing from the faith and hold fast to what it says. Now, it's interesting in chapter five, he starts talking about 
how to honor people. And he tells us not to rebuke an elder, but treat him as a father. Uh, Elder in this sense can be one of two things, one or two things, an older person or at the same time, somebody holding office in a church. But notice the idea of treating them as your father shows that you are to honor them and esteem them the way that in ancient times a father would have been esteemed. Now, in the ancient Hebrew tradition, we know it was for the most part patriarchal, but it was similar in the the Greek and even in the Roman spheres in the sense that the, the father had power over the family. However, the ladies still had power and control in the house. Well, if you find an elder that's doing something wrong, then you don't embarrass them and speak evil to them. You treat them in a way that you would want your natural father to be treated. So in a local church, then it's wrong if you ever hear someone cussing at an older man. I don't even think we ought to raise our voice and shout at an elderly person because that, that, that's improper. The, the way we should conduct ourselves are like people that have honor. For 12 months, I lived in Japan. That's an honor-shame culture. The Japanese, even if dad or grandpa is in error, you know, very often they won't even tell them they're in error. The kids will just defer to them. You see how they bow when they leave in the room with their grandparents there. They do this whole thing, then they back out. Then they do this, then they back out. They don't do anything that could cause shame to the elderly. But how many times have you been to a game and heard kids cussing around grandma and grandpa? How many times have you seen people pull into a parking lot somewhere and if, if something doesn't go right, they get to fight and arguing over a cart at Walmart or something like that. And somebody's disrespecting an older person. The Bible here says don't rebuke an elder, but treat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. So the way I interact with people my age is to act like they are my siblings. Act like men and women my age are my siblings. And, and since I have always shown my sister respect, that is how I engage other ladies my age. With respect and honor. Well, verse 2, the elder women treat as mothers. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a great relationship with my mother. And, and, and there's no way on this earth I, I'd let anybody disrespect her around me. But I'm the same way with older ladies in the church. I don't want them disrespected. I want them treated as though they are worthy of the respect that God says they should receive. And if I was ever in public somewhere and I heard somebody in another church or out in public say something disrespectful to somebody that I pastored, particularly, I know I would say something. Yeah, I know I would say something. There's no way I could be silent. So the younger as sisters with all purity. So interact with the younger ladies in such a way that you're trying to preserve their testimony. That's important because you don't you don't find that often with uh, a lot of people in today's society. They certainly don't care anything about purity at all. But uh, for the kingdom of God, we do. And we don't want 
our young ladies put in a position that makes them look like they're harlots or not connected with God. See, all of this is, is very, very important. When, when young, this before I was even saved and uh, before we even knew anything about, about the Lord. But, you know, my friends come to the house, knock on the door. I'm expecting them to ask for me and then they ask for my sister. And I mean, I'm balling up my fist. What are you doing coming over here asking for my, my, my sister? My, my, my whole thing with, with my little sister was uh, she's a teenager. She don't need to be dating anybody right now. Of course, she disagreed with me, but she can have that disagreement. Didn't matter. My, I was on my dad's side, so that's all that mattered. My dad, he was one of these characters. He wasn't interested in any young men coming to visit my little sister. And my dad was the kind of guy that when they came and knocked on the door just to get the for the shock value and to scare the daylights out of him, my dad would go to the door with nothing but his boxers on <laughs> and say, you must be coming here to see me because you're not going to see my daughter. Well, of course, then they'd turn and leave, and then they'd never come back again. And my little sister never even knew why people didn't come by the house. We knew because we had an orchestrated plan. We wanted to do what we could to keep little sister from having a kid out of wedlock, see, or from some young man becoming a father out of out of season. It seems strange, but around the world, the purity of the young ladies is important. And if they're not married and they're not engaged, then we ought to be careful about this. So verse three, honor the widows that are widows indeed. Widows, meaning spouses have passed on. And notice it says honor them. See, esteem them. In the local church, widows should be cared for. They should not be Neglected. And when it says widows indeed, it then gives us some, some information about, uh, the lifestyle. If any, if any widow has children or nephews, let them, children and nephews, learn first to show piety at home and to requit their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now, she that is a widow indeed and desolate, Trusted God and continued in supplications and prayers night and day. In the ancient church, they didn't have Social Security. There was no welfare system. You raised children to look after you. This meant that you had to have a connection and relationship with your children all of your life. It's not like today. Well, if, if you work and you get a pension, some kind of retirement, Social Security, and you make enough to live on your own, you don't care whether or not you talk to your kids or not, whether you agree with them, they agree with you. It doesn't really matter because you pretty much have your own funds by which you can live and you don't even need to talk to your kids. They don't buy you food. They don't buy you clothing. But in ancient times, no, you had to have a connection because even mom and dad knew that one day they'd be older. And the kids had to be taught to understand that as they got older, it was their responsibility to look after mom and dad. That it was not the responsibility of the Roman government. It was the responsibility of the children. And if they didn't have children, then you can see their nephews. Blood kin. Relationship. Looking after mom and dad. Well, what if we didn't get along? It doesn't say whether or not you got along. Blood kin. 
Mom and dad, well, they wasted so much of their own life and their own funds. It doesn't matter what they wasted. It says here, show that kind of love and piety at the house because you don't truly have faith if you won't honor your parents. That's what he's saying here. And verse five tells you if the person is a widow and desolate, that means doesn't have anything. But they've got faith in God and in a continual lifestyle of holiness, trusting God. You look after her. You take care of her. If her house needs to be shingled and you just raise the money in the church or just take the money out of the, the uh, bank account, you, you take care of it. The house is falling apart on top of her. Look after her. If you know she's hungry, feed her. Now, I've always been a nosy, nosy pastor, very nosy, nosy, nosy pastor. So if, if I go visit people that we pastor, uh, it's not uncommon for me to just go in and open up the refrigerator. I don't even ask. Or, or I'll make sure I'm in the kitchen when they open it up so I can look in there. Because if, if there's no food, then pastor going to make sure that there's some food there. There's no way that I'm going to know that somebody I pastor is hungry and I'm not looking after them. I'll make sure someone in the church does something. Go down to City Hall or wherever. Please pay that water bill six months in advance. Pay that electric bill. Whatever has to be done. We've done that a bunch of times. And the reason we do that is because some people just need the bill paid rather than giving them the money. Because if you give them the money, they're just not going to be responsible with that anyway. But you got you can make sure that their lights are on and you make sure they've got a roof over their head. So for the widow who's desolate and maybe didn't have a pension, didn't have any retirement. She didn't have an IRA and all these other things that people have. She's got God and God is saying the people in the church who also say they have God ought to make sure they look after her. Yeah, that's that's exactly how, how it is. But verse six, the one that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now, you find that same description in the book of Revelation talking about one of the churches. Yeah, it is God's desire for a widow to give herself continually to God. Well, what if an older lady, as I've had some say to me, uh, say, well, pastor, I'm just not built to be single for the rest of my life. Well, if she wants to get remarried again, God can do that, you know, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But verse seven, he says, these things you should command that they may be blameless. But if any doesn't provide for his own, see, we're still talking about the widows, still talking about the family. If any doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. How much faith in Christianity do you really have if you won't talk to the people that are your blood kin and help them out when they're in need? What kind of Christianity is this where you see me sitting here starving and hungry with tattered clothing on me and you're smelling a new car every year and a half and you won't even come look after me. But you want me to come to church and worship with you and we all claim the same God. No, no, we 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 need to uh, to actively pursue the will of God with respect to our our families. Now, let me also add this, though. 
there's only so much time in the day. There's only so many places a person can get to. So when you have a need, you need to express that need. You know, the Bible says if any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. They'll pray the prayer of faith on them. There have been plenty of people that stopped going to church because they got offended because nobody came to visit them in the hospital when they were sick, but they never called anybody, told anybody they were in the hospital. Or never told anybody they were sick. They just think people should be mind readers. I mean, aren't you guys full of the Holy Ghost and love God? Well, yeah. But that don't mean we know your, your needs. If you tell us what your needs are, then people can help try to supply your needs. But he says in verse nine, if she's not 60 years old, don't put her on the enrolled list for those to be taken care of. Say why? Because if she's younger, likely she'll probably remarry anyhow. But if well reported of for good works and she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now, notice all of that stuff mentioned in verse 10 doesn't say anything about it. She led folks to Christ, cast out devils, healed the sick or spoke in tongues. All of these things are good works that are mentioned here in verse 10. If a widow has done these things. Look after. Now, the, there were no Holiday Inn Expresses in the first century. So people look for Christians in different communities. That means if, if, if I would have been passing through coming from anywhere back east and coming through Hebron, then I found out there's some Christians here in Hebron by the name of the Beavers. And I got here late at night, two o'clock in the morning. Then I come, I'd knock on the door and I'd say, hey, I hear that you're Christians. I'm a believer also. I was wondering, would you have a, a little shed or lean to or someplace where I could lay my head? Then, then of course, the, the ancient church would do that. And they were, they would do it a lot easier because they didn't have serial killers like we have today. Okay. And, and people were a lot more trustworthy when it came to that. But it also says wash the saints feet. So people didn't most people didn't wear covered shoes like we have. They had sandals. So you walk a long distance. Then, of course, you get to where you're going. Your feet are kind of dusty. And then you get to where you are. Somebody comes out with a pot and wash your feet, kind of like what Jesus did with the disciples. So you you folks can see what I'm expecting next time I come visit. <laughs> see? Yeah. One of my bunions taken care of. All right. Relieve the afflicted. Whatever she could do to help those that were suffering, she tried. And if this kind of a lady is busy in the kingdom ministering in this fashion, she should be cared for. That's what it says. That's Christianity. But the younger widows refused because then when they've turned around and gotten to a, a place where, you know, they're tired of this whole thing, living for God, living pure, walking with the king, they may turn against God. They may just walk away from being with the church and with the king because they may want to get married. Now, some people do that even if they don't get married. But uh, he was he was very. Very clear with what he was trying to, to deal with here, having damnation because they've cast off their first faith. So going back to verse one, you can see in the last days some shall depart from the faith. But you can see now in verse 12, some of those that are depart from the faith in the latter times will be widows. Be widows. Life is tough. Life is hard. I'm struggling. 
Things aren't what I want them to be. Where is God when I need him? And since I don't see him showing up for me, they turn and walk away. But he says those same kind of people, they learn to be idle. They wander from house to house, not only idle, but tattlers also busybody speaking things they ought not. See, this this is why gossiping and all that stuff isn't good. But all you got to do is hang out with the farmers at coffee anytime early in the morning. You learn as much as you can learn in a beauty shop. Farmers know about everything that's taking place and gossip about everything. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Well, why will he speak reproachfully? Because of all the things mentioned up here in verses 12 and 13. They've cast off their faith. They're going round about. Rather than looking after their home, they're busy chasing behind stories and tales and telling them. Now, I have seen... Uh, young people where I go to visit their house during the week and I get there four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon and say, well, hey, how's, every, how's everybody doing around here? Oh, pastor, good to see you. Say, well, where, where, where's dad? Well, dad's at work. Where's mom? Well, mom, she just kind of out and about here, there and everywhere. Then I come back again on, in another week. Say, hey, where's everybody at? I know your dad's at work because I talked to him. Where, where's mom at? Well, mom's, she's over here doing this. She's over here doing that. And then when the then when the tears grow up and, and the kids turn into uh, bad seed, then we see very often there's been very little supervision for what is happening. So he says, Paul, this was a single man saying this. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't married here. He's saying, I would that the younger women marry and have the kids and guide the house. So the power of the home is certainly there. And I don't know if I was teaching here or up in Red Cloud when I was saying that it's very important that a wife knows how to handle bills and things in that house. Uh, One of the things my dad made sure growing up was that my mom knew how to pay bills, handle the checkbook and all of that. And the reason that came about is because we had so many ladies in our family that when my uncles and people died, I mean, the wives had never paid a bill. Had never put gas in a car. Had never even gone to an auto shop or something like that. So the, the, the point is, by getting them involved with the house, since they're there to guide the house, they should have some responsibility. Oh, well, I just don't think a wife ought to know anything about the money and the economics and all of that. You're deceived. You're deceived. She's half of that marriage. Usually the better half. She ought to know everything about what's going on. She might, might, might keep us men in check better if we, if, we, if we did it that way. I know if Tiffany was here, she'd say amen because she, she handles it all, and she just, she just hands me a few dollars every week, say, here's your allowance. I say, well, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Every now and then, she kind of increases that increment, you know. Say, oh, my goodness. All right, so verse 15, some are already turned aside after Satan. 
We see that in verse 12 and 13. They cast off the faith. They're wandering about doing this and that. If any man or woman believes, any man or woman that believeth had widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So if you got a family with a large enough family and there are widows in the family, then the family should take care of the people connected with them and not expect the church to do it. Right. So my grandma had 21 kids. So grandma didn't have to worry about how the bills were going to be paid. They all took care of it. When you got that many kids and grandkids, you can just go spend a month with each one of them. And it'll take you a few years to get through everybody. Yeah. But but imagine having a large family and that family doesn't want to have anything to do with you. I've seen that, too. I really have seen people burn bridges and people just cut folks off. But I come back to this. You can still help people without even having a physical relationship with them. If, if I was upset or angry with you in my family, um, I could still go get groceries for you, even if I didn't want to talk to you. You understand that? I could still help you with your light bill, even if you weren't appreciative of me helping you with your light bill. There's always something. It can be done. Well, let's try to try to finish this up and then we'll get back in this the next time. But uh, verse 17, let the elders that rule well. We've already talked about elders in earlier verses be accounted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So you can see that there are elders in the church who don't teach or do ministry, but there are elders in the church who do labor in the word and doctrine. So that would include me. That would include John. But ones who don't do any teaching or anything like that. So around here, I'd say Randy. See, Then other uh, other folks I got in in some other places. But notice verse 18. For the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, you remember the old standard in churches, which was basically uh, in in terms of paying preachers and looking after ministers. They kind of said it like this. Lord, you keep him humble. We'll keep him poor. Hey, watch it now. So ministers, because in the Old Testament, the Levites didn't receive an inheritance. They just received a place to live within the promised land. You know, they they didn't have anything that they had. The Lord as their inheritance. So we had a lot of ministers for years who would go 60 years in the ministry out here and other places and have parsonages for which they were extremely grateful. And every time they changed churches, they still had a parsonage, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but they had a place to live. And then they come to the end of their ministry when it's time to retire and they didn't own a house. Sometimes didn't have a car, certainly didn't have a pension or an IRA, anything, anything like that. So just you're in trouble, you know. And, and we want to remember that even with the children of Israel using the Levites as the model, the Levites were still taken care of all the days of their life. And as a as a as a Christian minister, we don't ever want to forget that there are plenty of people that say, I just don't think a preacher ought to make a decent wage. Well, of course you don't. You're not a preacher. But you you don't mind you having a nice house and wearing nice clothes. 
But then when it comes to to a minister, you want it totally different. I told a man one time when we were talking about um, retirement accounts and all that kind of stuff. I said, you worked all this time for the state. I said, do you realize if the state hadn't taken your money out for you, you probably wouldn't even have any retirement. Because according to how poor you say you were, you'd have never saved anything on your own. But they took it out for you. But I said, but yet for preachers, you don't even want to think about something like that. See? Yeah. The scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. The laborer is worthy of his reward. If you're going to work the ox in the field, give the ox something to eat later in the day or sometime during the day and rest the animal. Yeah. I think there's a preacher here in town telling me here not too long ago about a nice long sabbatical he was going on. I said, sabbatical? I said, how long is your sabbatical going to last? He said, oh, I think I've got like, like three months or something. I said, three months sabbatical? I said, man, I've got to mention that to the churches I pastor. 90 days of just traveling and resting. I wouldn't want to do it, but... There's a lot of people, a lot of people who would, but you know, God's good. And uh, if, if we follow Paul and Timothy's teachings, then in a good church, there won't be any lack because we'll be caring for one another. See, so don't be ashamed to invite people to your house because in, by inviting people to your house, you get to know people. And at the same time, pastor can be nosy. See, and, and, and don't be afraid to express sometimes when you have a need. Pride is a killer, folks. It's a killer. And, and as much as we all like to trust God, and I certainly am, am, am in that category, uh, but if, 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 I'm, if I've got a need and I needed help or something like that, I don't mind talking to people. Yeah, I'm not that that proud where I can't I can't do that. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for a clear word this evening that came as we look through this letter to Timothy. And we pray that something we said would give us an opportunity to really meditate, maybe change our thinking, change our doings. And I pray, Lord, you lead and guide us all the days of our lives in Jesus name. And everyone said, Amen, amen. Anybody got any questions or comments?